Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen. I teach philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I specialize in 20th century European philosophy. Hi, I'm Eric Kaplan. Uh, I'm a Hollywood writer, though I'm currently on strike, uh, but I also have a PhD in philosophy. And you are a person listening to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, which is a philosophy and comedy podcast in which we think about unsettling questions, reflect on them, talk about them, and try to reach a point of, let's say, insight, wisdom, courage, and equanimity, if we can. Yeah, the uh, I-W-C-E, insight, wisdom, courage, and equanimity, if we can. Exactly. Yeah. As it's known. And our terrifying question for today is, why do we like to remember things that hurt? Right. And that's a good terrifying question because it strikes to the heart of uh, what it is to be a person and what kind of person we want to be. Yeah. And it's paradoxical because um, if it hurts, why do we like it? Why do we like to do things that hurt? That's a more general question. Yeah. I mean, this question was asked and has still is still being asked about Greek tragedy or tragedy generally. People seem to like to watch terrible things and very upsetting things happening on stage. And it seems like you ought to just not enjoy that. Right, you shouldn't. Why would you like to look at something that hurts? Like one of the things yeah, I'm yeah. thinking about like is, um, uh, and I've been there, um, supposing you're in a situation where you say to someone, I love you. And if I'm not with you, my life is, is empty of meaning. And I, I don't love my life anymore because you're so terrific. And they say, oh, what a sweet thing to say. And you have a relationship. But then they leave you and they don't want to be with you anymore. And what strikes me is like, I used to think that you kind of, or like I, I'll put in the first person, that I should really feel bad for at least a year, mm -hmm. if not three years. Yeah. Because if I don't, then it means I was sort of lying. Because <laughs> here it was, yeah. I said that I needed this person to be happy. Right. And then the second I hear that they're not around, I'm like, well, how about you, Deborah? Maybe <laughs> I need you to be happy. <laughs> you feel like a hypocrite. Yeah. But I think it's it's not just a sort of a adolescent issue because you could feel the same way about like um, anything you care about deeply enough, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. That yeah. if you don't get it and if you're like, well, whatever, I guess I'm fine. I don't feel bad at all. Then that seems wrong. But what puzzles me is that if if on the other hand, if I'm just like, what are you what are you doing, Eric? Well, I'm just staying home and regretting what a fool I was in the past. Yeah. That, that seems wrong, too, that it's sort of wasting my life yeah. if all I want to do is beat myself up and punish myself for not having achieved some goal that I, I like living in regrets. So 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 I'm puzzled, like like the standpoint which says, you know, la, 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 the la, 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 la <laughs> standpoint, the standpoint that says yeah. uh, once you've figured out you're not going to get something, move on and forget about it. That doesn't seem right. But on the other hand, the standpoint that says live tormenting yourself with regrets, that doesn't seem right either. So um, you're a philosophy professor. Can you <laughs> solve this one? Maybe we don't need the whole hour. Maybe oh, we'll just yeah. do five minutes and then you can just play the mandolin. This shouldn't take very long. <laughs> okay. uh, let's draw a few distinctions. Okay. Um, well, one distinction that strikes me uh, is that there's one question which is about how you should think and what you should do and kind of setting yourself a, a plan or maybe even a policy. Like you were saying, if I just drop this and say, that's fine, then I feel like a hypocrite. And so maybe I therefore ought to undertake to to devote some time to a grieving process or something like that, as if I'm as if it's up to me. Right. But mm -hmm. there's another psychological aspect of this, which is that you're not in control of your emotions. That's why they used to be called passions, because you undergo yes. them, you suffer them. So uh, if it really did mean something to you, you just will be grieving for it for a while. It's, right. You can't just decide not to overnight. I mean, well, let me just say, if you can, then it's just true that it didn't mean that much to you. And maybe the honest thing would be to just admit that to yourself. Right. But um, let's just stipulate that it really... Would there ever be... I mean, I guess the uh, George Saunders story, Escape from Spiderhead, is sort of about this. Oh, I don't know Will that. there ever be a neuropsychological intervention where um, I can go to an emergency room and they'll give me a shot of something and then I won't be haunted by regrets? Oh, I hope not. You hope not. Oh, right, because that would be a technology that would wipe out the value or importance of something in your life. So it sort of gets us a little closer to why we want to remember things that are painful right so now you're in in such a world are they still passions or they're passions we choose to undergo what's how would you well not having read that? the story i don't know but i would well, say me, i'll just but tell just, you just let's just the, say okay. i mean actually this yeah. comes up in real life in a in a less 
funny situation yeah. if people if something horrible has happened to someone let's say a car crash um and and people have and i'll put some facts on the table they're not too far from the true facts that if you get if you don't get to someone after a horrible car crash right away hmm. they'll have post-traumatic stress disorder oh. and they won't be able to get in a car without having a lot of uh, panic and physical systems but if you go if they go right away when they're taking care of you physically and give you some kind of a shot then you won't have that interesting i, I yeah. don't know if those facts are entirely true but mm -hmm. you know they're close enough for rock and roll um <laughs> do you think um ah. in such a world is it my choice my passions then become my choice uh, in that area well that raises a distinction that's very important between okay. ordinary grieving and mourning which really means respecting and valuing the thing that was important to you that you've lost so that you can get through a process of mourning because mourning is and grieving uh that's a fully natural and normal and healthy thing to do. It's like getting something out of your system or processing it, people say, and it's a normal part of human life. Now, there are abnormal pathological, neurotic, or uh, morbid conditions which are, don't have the same profile, and they don't have a natural course to get through after which you're healthy and better. They, you tend to get stuck in them, and PTSD is like that, and depression is like that. And But th by the way, this was a distinction Freud drew in this essay called Mourning and Melancholia. Mourning, again, is a natural process. It's good. It's healthy. Melancholia, what we would call depression, is something people get stuck in, and it's, um, he thought, a kind of illness that needs to be treated now, without putting too much emphasis on the medical view of this, it's still, in some sense, undesirable, let's say, broadly speaking, pathological. People need help getting out of it because it doesn't naturally resolve the way a, a, a healthy grieving process does. So I think in the, in the, one, the first case you were describing, it sounded like you were erasing memories that were actually good to have, which is mm -hmm. kind of our question. Like, why is it good to have memories that are painful? Right. So in those cases where it's good to have painful memories, yeah. what's good about it? Well, that's really mysterious, isn't it? Yeah, right. Because, again, you might think, well, suppose you went through a natural mourning grieving process over losing a loved one or a relationship or a political cause that your life was devoted yeah. to. Freud mentions this, too. There's all kinds of things that you can grieve the loss of, an idea, a value. And suppose it were just the case that you could, now let's imagine again a pill, mm -hmm. that, you know, the grieving process would take two weeks or a month, and then you would be better. Wouldn't that be better? Uh, I think it challenges our intuitions, because just like you were saying, if that were the case, wouldn't it speak against the importance of it to you? I mean, wouldn't it seem like it wasn't all that important to you? Whereas if you say, well, if you're only going to grieve for a year, then it clearly wasn't that important to you because my uncle was depressed for 20 years after his wife died, and that shows you how devoted he was to her. We want to say, well, 20 years. I mean, in other words, these time spans, they might seem arbitrary from an abstract sort of reflective point of view, but yeah, why not a shorter grieving process? I can think of an example. Yeah, good. Romeo and Juliet mm -hmm. starts with him, Romeo, mourning the loss of his first relationship. I don't even remember who it was with. Oh. And then he meets Juliet. And you're like, obviously, he shouldn't keep mourning that <laughs> other girl. Because uh, yeah. it's Romeo and Juliet. And now he's <laughs> met Juliet. Um, so you wouldn't want to see him mourning this other... Uh, I'm going to say she's a girl because I think she was. I think they're all 14. I think so. so uh, yeah. <laughs> well, they were so just kids, too. So they had... You don't want to see him mourning that other girl. Right. And similarly, if um, if somebody was mourning the fact that... Um, you know, their career as a as a slide trombonist, you know, they didn't get in conservatory. <laughs> and then their country was attacked by fascists. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly they're to the beachhead to defend the fatherland or the yeah. motherland. Yeah. And you're like, don't you feel sad about the slide trombone? No, I don't. My head is on something more important. Yeah. I think that's fine. Well, that's, and Freud even says that's a uh, part of the natural grieving process is that your attachment 
transfers from the thing you've lost to something new. That's a healthy and good uh-huh. thing. And again, if it happens overnight, that seems a little dubious. But on the other hand, yeah, if it's trombone versus uh, foreign invasion, that seems reasonable. Right, um, or, or Wendy versus Juliet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, these things all seem kind of arbitrary, and yet there's a natural rhythm to it. I was reminded when we were batting around the possibility of this topic uh, just briefly a few minutes ago of this scene in the Inferno, which I've referred to in past episodes, so I apologize for yes. constantly going back to it, but I'm always thinking of Paolo and Francesca in one of mm-hmm. the upper layers or levels of hell. Uh, the, the punishment they're undergoing is not that terrible. They're just being blown around by a strong wind, which is a kind of metaphor mm-hmm. for their lust. But Francesca, who's the one who's doing all the talking, says this thing to Dante uh, as he comes upon them in hell, which is a very famous line. She says, there's no greater pain than to remember in our present grief past happiness. And that's a beautiful thing to say, but there's two things that it makes me think of. One is, um, but is it the greatest pain to remember past happiness in our present grief? I mean, there's another way in which, again, as our question says, we get some satisfaction out of that, even if it's painful. But... Notice that she's in hell, and that means eternal punishment. So her eternal punishment is never to be able to stop thinking about past happiness in her present grief. And that does seem like the worst thing you can possibly imagine. So the question is whether the most terrible sadness or grief is never being able to forget your past happiness. So she's a damned soul. Yeah. So we shouldn't take her word for much of anything, right? I guess that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think yeah. that her position is sort of like, it's a little perverse because you might think, um, like, she doesn't believe it's better to have loved and lost than ever to have loved at all. She's not saying that. And maybe yeah. if she believed that, she wouldn't be less of a damned soul. <laughs> that's true. Because yeah. she's kind of evaluating how to live one's life along a purely hedonistic metric. Yes. Like, she's not saying it's pretty good that we had love for one another. It's too bad we both were run through by my husband's sword, which I think is what happened to it, <laughs> yeah. happened to them. Yeah. But um, yeah. it's it's. I'm glad we actually had what we had. She she doesn't think that. To her, it's just a torment. And so I think she shouldn't t- be our guide here. That's right. Uh, this is, there's a lot of layers to this because I think when people quote that passage, they're they're seeing something right about it, which is there is a pain in remembering from present unhappiness back to past happiness because right. you feel the loss of it. That's the pain. But you're absolutely right that she and many of the other, uh, well, in fact, maybe all of the other souls in Dante's Hell haven't really repented. They haven't really seen what's wrong with what they were doing. And I think that's evidence here because she's saying the it's there's nothing worse or more sad than remembering past happiness from our present unhappiness, which sounds like if only I could go back to fooling around with Paolo and being mm-hmm. happy and romanced by him, then everything would be fine. And that's exactly the mistake she was making when she was transgressing. So in a way, right. she's still reenacting her sinfulness, which I think is always yes. Dante's point, is that these souls are never seeing the somehow the wrongness of what they were doing. Now, the other thing, though, that's ironic uh, and what you say reminds me of this, is that she's in maybe, I can't remember which level of hell, but way up at the top, not anywhere near down the middle or the bottom where it gets really, really bad. So this is a very lenient punishment by Dante's standards. They get buffeted around by the wind, and they can't hold each other, and that's frustrating, and it's upsetting, and it's pretty bad, but it's not like burning in boiling manure and you know no, no, no. chewing each other's scalps off like happens lower down in other levels um so it's a light punishment relatively speaking and i think although there's a lot of controversy about what we're supposed to think about them i think that's because their passionate love for each other paolo and francesco who are both in hell uh was actually it had something in common with christian love because it was passionate uh uh-huh. And it wasn't all bad. The, the, mm-hmm. the souls in hell that are really all bad are the traitors who are cold-blooded, scheming, treacherous. There's no love in that at all, and that's why they're worse off. Anyway, that's enough of Dante maybe for the moment. But it's a, it's a poignant line because I think you can see it from two angles. One is that there's something right about it, and the other is um, it's being spoken from a point of view of eternal regret and never-ending regret. Uh, and maybe what's wrong with never-ending regret 
is that you don't actually recognize the necessary transience of the happiness that you had. And maybe that uh-huh. was part of what made it beautiful, because what she would like would be eternal fooling around with Paolo. And that, that right. makes no sense. Okay. It sounds like you might be putting forward, or you're making me think of the following answer. We like to remember pain over something we've lost because we're coming to terms with the fact that we must eventually lose everything. Ah, yeah. And therefore, when we've come to terms with that, in a certain sense, we won't have the, um, the happiness of when we had the transitory pleasure um, because we've lost it. But we also won't have that kind of pain when we thought we could get it back because we realize that's the nature of any happiness that it comes and goes. Is, is that something I, like the right answer? I like that. I wasn't explicitly thinking that, but the, as you say it, I think, yeah, I think I do think something like that is right. And let me also just say that, of course, what we like in remembering past happiness is the kind of the illusion of still having it a little bit, like we have it in memory. And there's a gratification you can get or feel like you're getting if you remember a loved one. I mean, the reason we don't want to just forget them is because we still love them. And so what we're learning to do is lose them. And this is another... There's a little bit, there's a little bit of grieving, which I think is like... Um, it's like playing a video game where you're, you're, you're strapping on some version of your virtual reality headset mm-hmm. and you're back enjoying the thing that you lost. Yeah. And then it ends and you're like, oh, no. Um, yep. I, it's not real. And I've lost it again. Exactly. And that's that happens in dreams, when you dream about things you've lost or people you love. I mean, yes. I don't know if we ever stop dreaming about our parents, but my parents keep cropping up in my dreams and people I've known throughout my life. And uh, yeah, so that your your brain, your mind, whatever it is, is still getting a little bit of this gratification of sort of, yeah, reviving the lost uh, loved one and giving it to you. And when you wake up, you have this disappointment of like, oh, well, they're not here after all. I think that's part of what's very difficult about grieving is that you have to relive it. it again, and that's why it doesn't happen overnight is because it's this process of uh, you lose it. You're learning to lose it. You're getting acclimated yeah. to I remember when it. my dad died mm. that I'd wake up in the morning and have forgotten. Yeah. And I would be back in the sort of normal world where my dad was alive and then I'd remember it. Yeah, and then I would sort of lose him again. Ah, that's so hard, and yet that's what's necessary. That's what's um, you have to do. And it's interesting that we have to do that instead of just overnight changing our attitude all of a sudden. We have to. It's like training your mind to reorient itself to the world. So this reminds me of a very interesting book by Joan Didion called The Year of Magical Thinking, which was about the death of her husband, and it goes through this again. These very magical irrational thoughts of like he's died and they're going to do the autopsy and she finds herself thinking oh good if they do the autopsy and find how he died maybe they can make it better and he'll be all right again which of course Mm -hmm. she wasn't crazy she knew that was not the case and um so it's a real interesting and kind of harrowing study of that kind of your brain isn't acclimated to this loss uh the other thing this reminds me of if i just can mention it quickly before we take our break which we should do soon yes in fact we'll talk about this when we get back from our break it's a cliffhanger yes uh it's a movie by a russian filmmaker it's a science fiction movie i'll say something about it when we get back from this short break okay Okay, that was our break. And yes. I was just saying that these issue, this fact about the process of mourning reminds me of this movie everybody should see if they haven't called Solaris by Andrei Tarkovsky. Do you know it? I don't, but I love the author, Stanislaw Lem, who wrote the book he, it was based on. Stanislaw Lem, by the way, fascinating person. He didn't realize or, or perhaps he didn't say that he was Jewish until late in his career. Hmm. Um, hmm. Everybody go to Google and read about the biography of Stanislaw Lem. It's really interesting. I can't bring it to mind, but it's quite interesting. And, but anyway, the movie Solaris. And the movie that uh, Andrei Tarkovsky made on the basis of it is fascinating because very quickly, uh, it's about a 
uh, it's a little bit like 2001, a space mission to this planet. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but the idea is the planet can read the minds of the astronauts, and so their memories show up on the spaceship. And so a former wife or girlfriend of our protagonist keeps showing up and dying and showing up and dying and showing up again. And it's kind of harrowing and nightmarish, but it seemed to me like a, another good representation of this process of grieving. I just want to say that when I came into the recording session today, I thought maybe the answer was we need to remember things that hurt us to learn something. Because mm -hmm. I figured, I don't know, if you touch the stove and it burns you and you forget how much it hurt, you're going to touch the stove again. Or if, if you don't remember the fact that this particular verb in German is irregular and <laughs> that it felt bad to get it wrong on the exam, <laughs> you'll never learn German. Yeah, um, but, I... but I think that this is not what's going on mm -hmm. because that doesn't, we don't need to relive those things. We can just sort of unconsciously absorb them into who we are. And yet in the case of, of mourning, it seems we need to do something to absorb the pain, to process the pain into who we are. It doesn't just happen. Right, right. So I don't think it's an intellectual process of learning, but it does seem like a retraining in some ways. It seems like um, acclimating. It's not, an, it's not a passive process, though. It's something you do. Um, I mean, now, consciously or unconsciously. Learning from the stove seems to be a passive process. That's passive. That's right. Yeah, right. that seems to be something that, that nematodes can do, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. All kinds of animals are trained by painful stimuli and adjust. Uh, Merleau-Ponty says, you know, if you pull the legs off a bug, it'll just start walking differently because it has to because it has fewer legs. And I don't think it's thinking about anything. It's just adjusting. So mourning yeah. is a kind of adjusting, but it seems like there's much more of an intentional and psychological kind of reorientation. You are learning to adopt by undergoing over and over again the loss of the thing you're losing. You're getting better at losing it without feeling totally destroyed by the loss. And in that way, um, it seems like it's a slightly more cognitive process than just... Uh, right. Now, uh, Merleau-Ponty also does compare... I'm just remembering this. Uh, he does compare this kind of grieving and readjustment to what happens uh, with a losing a limb. And this is just a metaphor, because I think the two cases are different, just as we've said. But it's interesting that what they have in common, um, when people lose a limb, often, you know, they have the phantom limb syndrome, which uh, you may know about, which is that it still mm. feels to them as if the arm is there, uh, if they've lost their arm. In fact, they can still feel a pain or an itch in the hand that they don't have. And sometimes that lingers for a long time, and sometimes it just kind of gradually goes away. And Merleau-Ponty, when he's talking about that, says it's like the kind of grieving process where you still feel like the person is there, like your arm was there, and you have to kind of slowly acclimate to it's being gone, and you're readjusting. He thinks you're readjusting your whole orientation to the world. But I think it's emotionally, and I think there's a more, there's a cognitive element to it. Like, um, And here's where I want to sort of suggest that the memory part of it that I think is positive must be this, that w when you've lost something you've really loved, you feel like you've lost everything. Mm -hmm. And I think it must be the case that when you get through the grieving process, what you are learning, if you're learning something, is that in losing that, you haven't lost everything. Now, it's no good to tell somebody that right off the bat. You know, um, look, you've still got your health, you've still got your car, you've still got, <laughs> you know, that's right. not going to be consoling. But it is somehow true when you get some perspective on things, probably, if it wasn't in fact a totally catastrophic loss, that you do still have other friends, other family members, other attachments and commitments. And that doesn't speak against the, as it were, totalness of the loss of this thing you loved, but it also doesn't plunge you into total despair. You've learned how to sort of have lost the thing you loved and yet not feel that you've lost everything as you felt you did at the outset. And that means that you've kept, well, you've kept something. At least you do have the memory of them. And I think it's possible, I, I don't know that I've been through this myself exactly, that in having the memory of the thing you've lost, you are somehow at peace with the idea that you've lost it and it's gone, but you do have it in memory, and you can be, just as you were saying before, glad that you have it in memory. People say this often, like, I have beautiful memories of mm -hmm. him or her, and they're glad that they have those memories. So, yeah, um, yeah. That must be a goal of I, mourning. I wonder, 
If it might be a little bit like this, imagine I'm the person who lost his dreams of being a trombone player. Mm. Now, at the time, whenever I saw a parade, I thought, that's great. I love parades. Now, uh, the parade goes by. When I'm grieving, the parade goes by, and I'm like, I hate parades. I used to think I could be a participant in a parade, and now I realize I can't. And for me to stop grieving, it almost seems like I have to, well, number one, I have to adjust how I view everything. Yeah. Parades, music, having fun, marching, you know, yeah. my libido, just how I express myself as a joyous, fun person in this world is going to be different because it's not going to be trombone oriented. Uh, <laughs> but now, yeah, yeah, yeah. now that I've overcome it, and you know, I could have overcome it in a lot of different ways. Like I get the world back, and I guess it's the world of someone who used to play the trombone and doesn't anymore. Yeah. And that's also a world that I can love, and that has lovable things in it, and that I can put myself into, um, and I can see myself joining. And it's different from the previous two worlds. It's a difference from the world of the person who lost his trombone and the person who was looking forward to being a trombonist. Yeah. In some kind of way. I'm not sure how, but it's different. There's some kind of magical transformation that happens. I remember that there's this line in uh, Dostoevsky when Father Zosima and Brothers Karmazov is describing real grief gradually over many years transforming itself into what he calls a quiet joy. And it's kind of mysterious what that could mean. I'm not sure I know exactly, but it's something like this, that, yeah, you're glad to have had this finite, temporary happiness, even even in having lost it. I liked what you said a minute ago I, um, about, you know, in the end, you do kind of lose everything, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. <laughs> so um, uh, I do think there may be a kind of element of, Socratic uh, wisdom that Socrates says, or Plato has Socrates say, I don't know who actually said it, that philosophy is learning how to die. Mm -hmm. Have you ever met anybody in your life who doesn't know how to die? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and what, what's that person like? Um, they face death with anger and resentment and frustration and regret. I mean, I think we're probably all like that, mostly. I mean, how many of us so, are ready to die, after all? I mean, if you're not ready to die, then maybe you haven't learned how to die. And uh, I remember when my mother was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer, her reaction, much of it was anger and resentment. And the way she put it was, uh, she's going to miss out on everything. All the rest of us were going to enjoy. We had years ahead of us, and she didn't. And she was really pissed off about that. And she felt like she was being left out of a bunch of stuff. Would, you, would she have been happy if you had promised to not have a good life after she died? No, because I no. think given any, you know, a second or two to think about it, of course, she was very selfless and very generous and wanted nothing more than the rest of us to be happy. So it wasn't, she wasn't blaming us or wouldn't have wanted us to be unhappy, that's for sure. But she mm -hmm. felt excluded now, it may be that that was also a reflection of the fact that she had felt excluded during her life from all kinds of things, too, because she didn't have a, much of a career of her own except being a mother and a housewife. And But you weren't a rotten kid, were you? Oh, no, no. Okay. I was okay. an angel. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, but, but it occurs to me that um, maybe people who don't know how to die don't know how to live. Well, that's, that's what Socrates thought. I mean, Socrates thought the way to live is to have, you know, aspire to philosophical wisdom, which will be teaching you how to die. I'm not, I'm not buying into this wholesale, but there's something right about it, which is coming to grips with your finitude. And maybe philosophical wisdom, part of it is aiming at that, seeing the whole picture of human life so that you can embrace it and accept it and not go out kicking and screaming with regrets and anger. And I wonder if there's a little bit of... Um... There's a little bit of Francesca in all of us if we feel like, ha ha, I've got the person who can make me happy. Most people don't have that. Let me grab that person and like not even tell anyone about them mm -hmm. because I've got the thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And then when you lose that thing, then you're like, oh, darn, uh -huh. I lost the thing. But maybe if you follow the path of Socrates, the next time you get that thing, you'll be like, yeah. 
I'm going to lose this thing. It's a nature of things that you never get to keep them. And that will give you that quiet joy that Zosima is uh, pushing. Maybe, but boy, it's hard to see that when you're in the middle of the grief, isn't it? I mean, it's really hard to see your way out of it because when you're really suffering the loss, uh, you do feel like the memory of it stings. It doesn't feel like a comfort. Although I have had this feeling of while I'm feeling the grief, I'm really happy I'm feeling the grief because I feel like I'm feeling the love more intensely. Yeah. And that almost like when I was right. not feeling the grief, that I wasn't feeling the love. I was a little bit like kind of numbed out. I was pretending it would always be there, even though I knew it wouldn't. Uh-huh. And then I'm like, oh, it's almost like I remember this on the days of funerals, mm-hmm. that it's a very strange feeling that I didn't really have the words for. And I felt a little guilty for having it almost. Mm. That is like, I feel happy uh-huh. at the same time as I don't feel happy. Ah, you know, in some cultures, funerals are sort of festivals. They're sort of celebratory. And there's some funeral practices that uh, in New Orleans, you know, they sort of, they've got the band playing and, you know, it's sort of a party. Yeah, in New Orleans and in um, the Zoroastrians uh-huh. did that too. Yeah. That they they cried when the baby was born huh. and rejoiced at the funeral. <laughs> And this is my one contribution to uh, social science, as I suspect that uh-huh. New Orleans culture has its root in Zoroastrianism. <laughs> I think you um, should look into this. I, I think it may I be. Haven't, yeah. I haven't really gotten as much support from the Academy as I deserve. It rings true, I must yeah. say, yeah. So now, but this, what you say, raises a different question, a very closely related question, which is, can it happen that the gratification you're getting from memories of past happiness and current unhappiness becomes a kind of fixation and uh, an unhealthy fixation because it's keeping you from progressing through the mourning process. And again, this was what Freud was talking about when he talked about melancholia. He thought that the depressed patients who were not grieving and getting through the grief but getting stuck on it were exhibiting somewhat different signs, a lot of the same symptoms of the mourning. So in grief, you don't take pleasure in anything for a while in the world. Every, it seems like the loss has spoiled everything. You're not motivated to do new things. You don't want to go anywhere or do anything. It's like the loss of this thing you loved has kind of spoiled everything for a while. But he says the patients who are suffering from melancholia or depression also have this self-castigating loss of self-respect and self-esteem that's different from people who are just mourning. And it looks like they're punishing themselves. So they're attached to this loss, but they're getting some kind of gratification from it in seemingly turning some kind of aggression back on themselves. And he thinks this is because they have so identified with the lost thing that they've, as it were, internalized it. And now they can, as it were, get their revenge on the thing for having abandoned them by focusing a part of themselves, the sort of criticizing self, onto this part of themselves which they identify with the lost thing, and that gets them stuck into this melancholia. It reminds me of something I've just thought intuitively in my own experience, which is it is very possible to get a kind of perverse satisfaction from your own misery so that you don't want to let go of it, because you think if you don't have this misery, then nothing will seem important right at least this shows you that something is important to right you. I, I suppose it's interesting um like um when one is dumped right mm-hmm. when one is dumped yeah one feels um or i felt oh i'm worthless yeah that person is the source of my value and the fact that they don't want to be with me means that i'm not worth anything right and yet you sort of feel like as Nietzsche said, even the person who despises himself respects himself as one who despises. Yep. Yep. So part of me is also thinking, well Yes, yeah. You're you part of me is saying, Eric, you're worthless. And that part of me that's saying, Eric, you're worthless, probably thinks it's pretty good. Because otherwise, why would it be telling Eric what to think of himself? Why didn't it yeah. just go play in, play in traffic, right? Yeah, so, and, and, it, and if you let go of this part of yourself, which is punishing yourself for being worthless, then you've really lost all contact with the thing you loved. Because after all, right. you are echoing 
what you think they thought, which is that you are worthless. <laughs> so yes. in thinking that you're worthless, you're allying yourself with the lost loved one who you think now views you as worthless. Mostly they haven't actually taken on this view. So um, uh, hopefully. <laughs> but but it's a good, but even yeah. if they had, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. But, it doesn't. But yeah. it's, it's an interesting, it's not an interesting, it's a really important thing that people do to make themselves safe. It goes back to infancy, mm. that if your parents say, you're a bad boy, we're going to leave you alone to cry, mm. then that's so terrifying because as a child, if you're left alone, you'll die. Mm. The only way to be safe is to be like, I'm on the team of the people who think I'm a bad boy. Right. I think I'm a bad boy. Right. So you you split yeah. into the part of you that feels like a bad boy and the part of you that is on mo team mom and dad <laughs> and saying that that other part of you is a bad boy. Yep. I think that's true. And I do think that situations of um, being dumped or being rejected uh, always get a lot of their pain because they, you know, well, in my case, but but yeah. I think I'm pretty normal. Mm -hmm. they, they remind me of being abandoned as a child. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. And look, when people are in love, they call each other baby, obviously. Yeah. Obviously, there's something, something going it's on. It's not there. an accident. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. So yep. what's the conclusion we draw from that? Like, we have these two pictures going, and I'd like to put them together into one unified theory. The first picture is um, uh, we must learn that everything passes away and stop clinging to the thing of the past. And when we do that, that gives us the opportunity to have this sort of quiet joy of... Uh, he who kisses the fleeting joy as it flies lives in an eternity sunrise. We get the living in eternity sunrise picture. But then there's also the picture of um, of stopping to give energy to the part of you that feels good by hating yourself. And what do those two have to do with each other? Let me think about it while we take our next break. Okay. Yeah, and then we'll okay. come back. From our break so yeah go ahead there's two theories on the table yeah one of them is a socratic theory and the socratic theory says that grief is coming to terms with the fact that someday we will lose everything and it leads us to a sort of philosophical understanding of the finitude of everything the world has to offer us learning to die mm -hmm. and then there's the freudian theory and the freudian theory is grief is struggling with the fact that we have so identified with the lost object that in order to feel good about ourselves, we have to be on its team. And that means we have to feel bad about ourselves. And mourning is sort of overcoming this split within ourselves and no longer feeling that the only way to feel good about ourselves is to feel bad about ourselves. Right. Do these two things go together? <laughs> Boy, that's a, that's a hard one. I'm having a hard time holding them both in my mind at the same time. Let's keep saying them until we can remember them. Okay, so um, so the, the Socratic part is partly what Kierkegaard sometimes talks about, because like, he, he thought the Socratic view is on its way to the properly Christian view, mm -hmm. that you first of all have to have infinite resignation, because after all, you are going to lose everything. Yes. At least from the finite point of view, which as far as we normally think about, that's more or less everything. Mm -hmm. And hopefully from that you get to something, some higher kind of faith or consolation. Now, the Freudian idea is, is really about mental health. It's really about how to suffer loss and to grieve healthily so that it doesn't destroy you and that you can form new attachments to things and get out of the pathological kind of mourning, which turns into melancholia or depression. And melancholia or depression is enjoying how worthless I am. Yeah. It's getting yeah. worth 
from realizing how worthless I am. But Freud says that he thinks the people who are just mourning don't have, they don't exhibit this kind of self-punishment or self-castigation. He thought that people tended to be like morally judgmental, that they say, I'm a terrible person, I've done something wrong, and they fear punishment and retribution. I don't know that I've seen so much of that, but I do think a lot of depression comes from self-punitive, overly self-critical attitudes that people have about themselves. They, they're hurting themselves. That Freud didn't think was a part of the normal, natural yeah, part of I, mourning. I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking about is the philosopher who says, I will never love anything because I will always lose it. Is he suffering from some sort of culturally sanctioned depression? Mm, maybe. In other words, yeah. maybe the universe is the punishing mother uh -huh. and the philosopher is trying to team up with the universe and be like, yeah, yeah, I'm a worthless flicker in the cosmic night. So I'm going to be on the side of the cosmic night. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think what, I think when Kierkegaard talks about despair, it sounds a lot like melancholia, actually. It yeah. sounds like a lot like giving up. Well, I've lost everything. So I'm worthless. So like, uh, I'm turning in my ticket. That's it. I'm checking out. Nothing is worth having anymore. Now, I'm not so sure that Freud is right that there's such a sharp distinction between mourning and melancholia. I don't, I don't know. And it's, a, it's an empirical question, I guess. What do people actually say when they're mourning? And I what don't do they know say? if it is an empirical question, because I think it also has to do with what, what way of life you think is worth living, you know? Like, even if you gave people surveys and they all said, um, mm. like, I don't know how you'd answer, I guess I'm saying I'm not sure how you'd answer the question <laughs> empirically. I was thinking it was an empirical question because it would just be interesting to talk to a lot of people who are going through these things and hear what they have to say. I think my own intuition, I can't remember a case exactly in my life. Maybe I could. I don't know if it's serious enough to warrant the attention. But I think I've mourned uh, in ways that didn't involve a loss of self-esteem. I didn't feel uh -huh. like my ego was threatened so much. I felt like it was very sad uh, that this loss happened, and I could genuinely grieve it. But I didn't feel destroyed by it. I didn't feel invalidated. I didn't think I was never going to like anything again or anything like that. Um, but maybe that just wasn't a very serious grief. I wonder if the if the loss of a parent versus the loss of a lover uh, hit the ego differently. I bet. Probably not for everybody. I mean, different people have different experiences. That that's I, in my experience. There's a difference. Yeah, because <laughs> I think you know. I mean, these things, as Freud knew, are connected. Of course, you yeah, know, they are. Didn't Freud say something like, "When two people fall in love, there's at least four people, if not six people, involved in the relationship, or something like that, because of the parents." And yeah. So yeah, when you feel validated by a partner's love, it's surely a replay of some infantile security you were getting from your parents and protection and when that's taken away from you it's pretty terrifying because you feel abandoned now how do you feel and you haven't had this so you'll just have to do it hypothetically mm -hmm. if your child were to say to you i repudiate all your values old man <laughs> i don't want to be like you at all i would consider i would consider that an utter defeat uh, how is that kind of oh. mourning different than oh yeah. Um, I feel they're all connected in an interesting way. Sharper than a serpent's you know? tooth, right? Right. And yet we kind of wish, you know, our children to outlive us. Yeah. So then we wish them to be kind of like able to go on with their lives happily without constantly being like, you know, I, I don't know exactly what I want my kids to think about me when I'm dead. And, and I don't know how much it, mat <laughs> it matters what, what I do want. But I sure don't want them to constantly to to have the weight of my existence oppressing them. Yeah, this was King Lear's um, tragedy, wasn't it? Feeling completely repudiated by at least one right, of his daughters. Right. It surely was painful. I mean, it's a kind of unrequited love. Yeah. Surely he felt so wounded because he loved the daughter and he wasn't able to express it. So uh, right. uh, let's not get lost in King Lear. But um, but I think the unrequitedness, unrequitedness yeah, that's it. Yeah. is a, a really key part of grief. I think so, too. And when a parent... That you want some kind of response from the universe, your child, your lover, yeah. and you're not getting it. Right. And what are you going to do about that? Right. Like, you could keep asking, and if you keep asking, 
and you keep hearing and it's like you keep asking the silence and you keep tuning your ears to hear what the silence has to say yeah when a parent dies and they're telling you that they love you you still feel like you have their love even having lost them so depending on how early this happens or how old you are or whatever i think the earlier it happens the harder it must be later in life it's something that people can manage easier i think people can't manage it if they have unfinished business yeah right must be must be yeah it's like you never told your dad something and then he died and you never will i think i think that's an example of sort of like trying again trying to have a conversation with the silence yeah interesting um boy i think one thing to think about and we're kind of winding down here maybe is that it may be that our question is slightly misformulated because it says uh why do we like remembering things that hurt and i think both of those verbs are probably not quite right it's not that we like it that when we're remembering something that we've lost we kind of have to remember it we need to remember it it's not like liking it's not just pleasure it's not exactly gratifying so i'd be tempted to say something like why do we feel that we need to remember these things we do get something out of remembering them but if again, if we get too much perverse gratification from tormenting ourselves about our losses, that can we can get stuck in that, and it's probably not productive. Right. And and you also shouldn't be in a relationship in real time where you get too much satisfaction getting tormented by how <laughs> worthless you are. Like that's like it's, a just a good piece of advice for generally any something to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess what the reason why I made that joke is I'm sort of thinking now that. Um, we're always having a conversation with the past and to engage in a conversation with something or somebody means being open to sometimes hearing things you don't want to hear. Yeah. Right. And sometimes you want to move on from a conversation, but if what you're hearing is more and more stuff you don't want to hear, it doesn't mean you immediately don't have any value in the conversation. Yeah. Right. And so you're thinking that when you've lost something, it's, you're you're hearing something from the world that you don't want to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like yeah. I wish I was with Sally. Yeah. And then you keep hearing, You're not Eric. <laughs> I was with Joe. Sally is gone. And then you're like, Well, what about this? Yeah. Nope. Yeah. She's still not with Sally. She's with Joe. Right. Oh, well, what if I wore my hair differently? <laughs> nah, still not with Sally. And this conversation yes. is teaching Eric more about Eric and love and so many important things. Until ultimately Eric becomes bored with it. Yeah, this may sound banal, but what I have been thinking throughout this conversation is that there is something a lot like getting over temper tantrums when you're about three years old, Mm. two or three years old. Because what you're doing when you're compulsively remembering something you've lost and wanting it back is like protesting and sort of screaming right. and like you want the thing and you're acting like a child and you know when your parents say go to your room until you've calmed down and then you can come down and eat with the rest of us when you're ready to be you know good i remember that experience from when i was 5 or 6 maybe and i remember the kind of feeling of helplessness that you just have to let go of that temper tantrum or i mean my experience was something more like after a few minutes it just went away but that's what's hard about this grieving thing is you have to let go of these things you've lost. And I guess in a way, the wisdom you get that may give you the Father Zosima sense of quiet joy is finally sort of surrendering yourself to the fact that you can't control these things. Right. That's the hard thing about relationships of all kinds is that you are not in control. It uh, no. takes two to tango, at least. And yes. you can't get what you want by screaming and throwing a fit. And that's that's maybe a lesson we keep learning through the duration of our lives that you have to kind of surrender to what's going to happen or i would say you have to scream and throw a fit yeah and see how the universe or your world responds that's right you again like we said at the outset you you can't and shouldn't just give up too quickly yeah. because you'll probably be getting it wrong about how much control you have over the situation or what you're right, responsible or for or what you're really doing yeah you see i was told to go to my room and cry it out too and I think what happens is you do sort of side with the accuser against your feelings. Right. You know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you get to feel that your it's your feelings that are bad. And if you would just be someone who didn't have any feelings, then mommy and daddy will let you come down and have dinner. And I don't think that's a great attitude. I think that's dangerous. Probably not. But I I also remember in, I mean, later in life, a similar feeling, which is a kind of equanimity you get when you just see that this is just how things have to be. Yeah. 
and and the protest was really futile and misguided. It doesn't mean I'm a total stoic. I think I should just resign to mm-hmm. that I'm helpless totally. But there is a kind of peace you get from just realizing that the rebellion against the way the world is is doomed. It's just never going to help. Mm-hmm. But I think you're absolutely right. You have to get through that to find out where the boundary is and where the contours of the world are so that you can settle in. And I do think, I guess I do think that's sort of like a preview to learning how to die because the ultimate boundary that you're never going to move is your mortality. Right. Of course. And it may, in a sense, be the ultimate being held by the universe when you're not pushing back against it. It's just, you're just settling into its embrace. That's right. Exactly. And I would say too, so it's not that we... So say that we like remembering things that are painful is the liking is kind of misleading because it's like I like chocolate ice cream and I like a, a nice hot bath and I like a jog through the park and I like this. Because uh, Paolo, excuse me, Francesca was not wrong when she said there is something painful about remembering past happiness from present unhappiness. But the other thing that's not quite right is to say that it's just pain because if it were just pain, you would avoid it. Right. So it's a stinging kind of pain that's poignant and sweet and... A self-laceration. Yes, exactly. That's right. Um, Dostoevsky uses that term too, this lacerating... Uh, well, I, when it's neurotic, it's lacerating. But yeah, but even in the normal case, there's something like that about it. Yeah, so coming to see that it's not just pain. Right. Yeah, I wonder if it's a little bit like um, Freud says, uh, and, and I'm going to do this in the male uh, perspective, but the, the female viewers should flip it, that every man has three women in his life, his mother, his lover, and death. Mm. Um, and maybe in a sense, it's it's the sort of taking our eroticism from life and transferring it to that final, you know, rebound relationship with death. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. Did we did we gain some I think so. insight? And I do think let's let's um let's figure out our way to like take a gentle leave of the listener. Yes. I think that's a good thing we've added to it. So, right. so you know, moving into the rest of your day, uh, may you uh, kiss the fleeting joy as it flies and thereby live in eternity's sunrise. Right. And um, I don't know what to say that's going to be comforting. I thought that was a pretty comforting episode. And comforting. Uh, disturbing. Yeah. But here's what I want to say. Disturbing and comforting at the same time. Right. These are not two different things. Yeah. Right. It's good. Right. So the fact that you can be disturbed and comforted at the same time means that uh, the opposite is also true. That yeah. you can be you can be in a in an uneasy sleep where you're undisturbed but uncomfortable. Yeah. Some comforts are disturbing and yeah. some disturbances are comforting. Yeah. Okay, peace out, listener. Very good. <laughs> okay. okay. See you next week. See you next week. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's produced by Amanda Eberhardt. The music and editing is by me, Taylor Carmen, and our cover art illustration is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.